electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, forecast show, light show, light snow, high growth tech takes another leg lower. NVIDIA and Snowflake both revealing some disappointing outlooks. We'll talk to Snowflake's Frank Slootman tomorrow right here on this program. NVIDIA shares are staging a turnaround now in the green. That's a stock that fell 10% last night immediately after those numbers crossed. And speaking of chips and software, Broadcom putting the two together, officially announcing that $61 billion purchase of VMware, one of the biggest tech deals ever. More on that in a moment. We'll start, though, with earnings for Snowflake and NVIDIA. But interestingly, the turnaround on NVIDIA, John, is what's gotten some people's attention. Yeah, it's gotten my attention, Carl. I think it's interesting. Neither company made big mistakes in the quarter. The stocks are mixed. I mean, it seemed uh, just a a month or two ago that companies had to turn in perfect earnings or they'd go down. Um, This wasn't perfect from NVIDIA in in the sense that the, the macro environment was tough gaming in in Russia and China, data center still strong. Snowflake, though, at the same time, um, you know, it said consumption was down. And I wonder if that's a leading indicator, D, on what's happening in the cloud. Because, you know, if consumption is down in April, then perhaps you don't need as many chips for hardware, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps hardware spending also ends up uh, slowing down, even in the cloud. Of course, we saw some hard, hardware concerns, some yellow flags yeah. uh, from Cisco as well, and that playing out in Nutanix this morning. But, um, you know, they, they, Snowflake still had a number of big customers mm-hmm. that they added during the quarter, but even this high flyer, this high grower affected by the macro environment. You could tell even on the call, John and Carl, that analysts were really trying to get the root of where consumption is actually slowing. There's one that just came out with it and said specifically, who is it? Is it Meta, Netflix, Peloton, Snap, Amazon, Walmart, Target that are slowing? And Snowflake CFO said, no, it's actually none of them. And the rest of the call was kind of spent trying to figure out where that weakness was. Maybe that will give us some more clues about the economy and enterprise spending. But as a whole, and John, I know you just mentioned Nutanix as well. This is the latest group of tech companies to give warnings about macro conditions, right? Um, Below their guidance was all below street expectations. We have spent the last few weeks really focused on consumer tech and the retailers, but Now we're looking at semis and cloud, Carl, networking with Cisco. Um, The markets, though, this isn't a snap. They're kind of taking it in stride with the Nasdaq up more than 2% right now. Yeah, you know, in retail, guys, we we always look at the client mix, right, the customer mix. Are they high end? Are they low end? What kind of consumer goes there? And that sort of feeds your view of whether or not the future is good or bad. That's increasingly happening in enterprise software, uh, especially when you listen to Sloopman's comments about 
the types of clients that had slower spending. We can't wait to talk to him uh, tomorrow. Meantime, uh, today's mega deal, Broadcom continuing its M&A strategy, going deeper into enterprise software, officially announcing it'll acquire VMware for $61 billion in cash and stock. That price making it one of the largest tech acquisitions in history uh, behind Microsoft's pending purchase of Activision Blizzard and Dell EMC. That merger designed to diversify Broadcom's semi-business and boost its software segment, which made up roughly 25% of total net revenue in 21. Not a done deal yet. It does include the go shop allowing VMware 40 days to evaluate other offers. There had been some chatter, D, which we mentioned earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. Was this an attempt uh, to get growth goosed a bit in the wake of disappointments like Cisco? But the guidance itself, um, at least on Q3 revenue, not too bad. Yeah, it makes you wonder, too, who other than Hawk Tan can do a deal like this. He's really proved himself, John, sort of a kingmaker in the space. He turned Broadcom into a chip powerhouse through acquisitions. Now he's got his eye on enterprise software with CA technology. And then Semantic, there are skeptics out there. It was only this week that we heard from Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Aurora. He seemed to throw a little bit of shade on this deal, saying that maybe companies want more specialization, not a big conglomerate like Broadcom is turning into, or, or already is, but even more so. Uh, on the question of who else could do this, I mean, not a lot. I think the market cap uh, on, uh, on VMware is too rich for IBM. Uh, Microsoft is busy, right? So if you're looking at who else, I mean, Oracle, maybe, but I, I don't see them uh, wanting to do this. So I think Hawk 10 is probably in the clear as far as that goes. And, you know, with his software track record up to this yeah. point, there's a lot of confidence that he can get this done. Mm -hmm. It's just so interesting to me. Like one of the bigger deals than this, of course, was Dell EMC. VMware was part of that deal. Turned out to be a very important part of that deal. But VMware just keeps getting passed around. Part of the reason why they're in this position right now is because they don't have cash, right? That Dell... <laughs> took that cash out yeah. uh, of VMware, <laughs> and, and now they're not in position to buy anything to bulk up themselves. Now there's somebody else's plan yeah. to bulk up. Well, let's stick with that deal. Joining us now, more insights and strategy CEO, Patrick Moorhead. Pat, it's been a while. Good to see you. Um, how does this deal, first off, change Broadcom, right? Because now software as part of VMware are going to be a much bigger part of that company. And then how does it upset the uh, entire uh, industry space and Broadcom's potential influence in it. Yeah, so John, thanks for having me on again. So first off, um, I think we were all surprised when Broadcom, the chip company, decided to get into software and then they took out CA and then Symantec. But here we are really going after the broadest base company from an enterprise perspective. Every enterprise uses VMware in some way, uh, shape, uh, or form. And I, I do think that this is disruptive, but, uh, and I think we have to always give uh, Broadcom CEO Hock Tan credit for the ability to do this, but it's going to be interesting to see if Broadcom runs its typical playbook, which is doubling, maybe tripling prices, uh, slashing uh, research, how that would work with the VMware base uh, of customers. Well, VMware is already expensive from what I hear from IT buyers out there. So I don't know how much room there is to raise prices. I wonder, though, um, it's kind of different use cases, what, what you're doing with VMware software versus what you're buying on the chip side from Broadcom. Are there efficiencies within the sales force to be gained here? Or is this more of a conglomerate strategy where you got this over here, you got that over there, and there's not necessarily uh, a place where the train shall meet? 
John, I've thought about this a lot. I've listened to indications uh, from the company on what it wants to do to find strategic value amongst its assets, and I'm not finding them right now. So I see this as a conglomerate play, the ability to do another giant uh, roll-up, and essentially they believe they can better monetize it than the current uh, owners and management. Yeah, and Pat, as you were kind of saying, we give Hawk Tan a lot of credit, or the benefit of the doubt at least, because he has been successful in rolling in software companies to the broader Broadcom. But what are the chances this doesn't succeed, that this amounts to a distraction and there aren't enough synergies, or it's not as successful as part of a big tech conglomerate? Yeah, so first off, I don't see too many regulatory challenges on this. And aside from a customer revolt, uh, I see this going through. I think, though, customers are going to want to get some confirmation from Hawk Tan that he's not going to come in and, and raise prices. Because, quite frankly, this is this has been the playbook, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, switching, uh, whether it's other acquisitions that have been made. And to switch out of VMware is really hard. The cost and the time it might take, if, you have, if you're an enterprise, you have 5,000 applications that are sitting on top of VMware, it's an expensive venture. So are you saying then that it will be too hard for customers to switch and that Hoctan can raise prices? I think he has the ability to raise prices because it's very hard to switch the time to switch to a new virtualization technology, so let's say like Red Hat or a KVM or even move to a brand so new Pat, technology containers. If that's the case and you think that he has ability and people think that he is going to raise prices, do you think that someone else could come in here? Do you think there's going to be opposition, maybe not from regulators, but from customers to this deal? I think there will be customer opposition uh, uh, to this deal, but I don't think that customer opposition could thwart the deal. I think this is going to move forward. So, Pat, what does this, and you can combine this with um, uh, NVIDIA getting a bit of a bounce this morning, what does it signal to you, perhaps, about the value of strong players? I mean, we, we're seeing private equity active as well, seeing deals where, you know, investors certainly seem to be frightened about, uh, about where the bottom might be. Well, it's funny. I think valuations, based on what private equity is coming in with, says, says that uh, valuations are, are appropriate. I know of the last month it's been uh, ebbs and flows, but I think there is still demonstrative value in tech and, and leaders in tech. And I think this is a great example uh, with this takeout. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about enterprise software and you're also a chips guy. So real quick, we were talking about NVIDIA earlier, um, some gaming headwinds, uh, certainly. But what what was your main takeaway from that quarter uh, from from the technology side and the degree to which they might have a moat? Yeah. So first off, there's nothing that I saw from last night and the call that leads me to believe there's a, even a, a midterm uh, change uh, for NVIDIA. They're in markets that continue to grow. Uh, they are competitive in those markets. And aside from what happened uh, with China uh, and Russia, I'm not seeing that change. Now, the other thing that NVIDIA is in is they're in a product crossover, right? They are draining some inventory in the channel to, to make ready for their new 4,000 generation product. And I think those together uh, in, you know, were indicative of, of their guide and their performance. But gaming continues to move forward. Even if you say 
10% of that is crypto, and there was a bottoming out in crypto, gaming continues to move forward as a market. Awesome. Pat Moorhead, more insights and strategy. Thank you. Sticking with NVIDIA, our next guest uh, cut his target uh, from 320 down to 270. Still at a buy, though, says the chip maker is driving that reset in gaming. Joining us this morning, B of A analyst Vivek Arya. Uh, Vivek, it sounds like people wanted the reset on gaming and everybody's got newfound appreciation for data center, right? Yeah, thank you, Carl. Uh, I think coming into the call, there were two big questions. Uh, would NVIDIA be able to maintain their growth in the data center business, which is the more important part of the company? And secondly, how much would their gaming business be impacted by the macro headwinds? And the answer that we got was data center is on fire. You know, they grew over 80% year on year in their data center business in the last quarter. And despite all the supply constraints, they are guiding to over 70% growth right now. And they have a new product cycle coming out in the back half. And then on top of the accelerator uh, dominance that they have, they have new CPU products, which is a 30 billion new addressable market that they are going to go after next year. So data center, absolutely not a problem, and it's now half of the business. I think on the gaming side, exactly as you observed, uh, that's where uh, we have seen this pullback. Now, a number of investors were waiting for that pullback. The China and Russia happened to be the reasons, but many investors were waiting for the pullback. So we see it as kind of this cleansing pause that can help the company move, move forward. Right. Now, on Data Center, of course, it was also the calling card for AMD's quarter, and they talked about gaining share points. Um, is it a two-horse race, really, at this point? And how much is there to go around between the two? Sure. I think uh, the big picture view is that uh, what these semiconductor companies are doing, uh, both AMD and uh, NVIDIA, and, and to some extent Marvell and others as well, is they are expanding the size of the silicon pie that there is greater adoption of AI that requires a lot more computing and networking and optical performance, and that's what these companies are enabling. Now, in the specific case of AMD, you also have a share gain uh, story against uh, Intel. So AMD, I actually found a little more of an idiosyncratic story in that even if the size of the market doesn't change, they have this great ability to take a market share away from Intel, and despite the growth that AMD has had over the last few years, their total value share today against Intel is less than 20%. So we think their value share can more than double over the next uh, few years, even if the size of the market doesn't go up. With NVIDIA, it's more of a TAM expansion story. So I think both of them are sort of complementary in their own way, even though it seems like on surface they are addressing the same markets. Hey, Vivek, it's John Fort. So we've never seen a real extended slowdown if we are in fact seeing a, an extended economic slowdown in the cloud and hyperscaler era. So I wonder whether these chip makers are even able to tell, right, how they might be affected if that happened. I mean, how exposed are they to some large customers that might decide, okay, we've got enough chips for now, I'm full, thank you, and, and, and maybe there isn't as much buying, for example, as we saw uh, Snowflake make those comments on consumptions, if it turns out uh, over the course of the spring and summer to be more than just a case of a few customers. Absolutely. I think, John, the, the thing with the semiconductor industry is that every time we forget it's cyclical, it has a way of rudely reminding us that it is cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, um, you know, there are uh, other secular parts uh, of it. I agree with the point that you made, and we saw this uh, when we were going through the COVID shutdowns, that the automotive end customers, for example, they shut down supply chains very quickly. And then for six quarters, they had to suffer from it. 
So it's very possible that end customers don't want to be in that position. So some of the demand signals that semiconductor companies are seeing might be somewhat distorted because customers don't want to move out of the queue. So there is a delay. There is always a delay because semiconductor companies are upstream. That Maybe there is a greater delay now uh, because of the demand signals that they're getting. But I think what's also important to note is that the demand that these semi-companies are seeing is broader based. So let's take NVIDIA as an example. Of course, cloud matters a lot, but you know, cloud is half of their business. The other half of the business is enterprise, which has been very early stages of adopting AI. And when you look at in enterprise, as you're looking at uh, supporting this very strong employment picture, the use of AI tools, uh, scientific uh, competition, the use of a lot more chatbots and other productivity uh, mechanisms, I think adds a layer of very secular growth uh, to these mm -hmm. companies. So it's both diversification, and I think there is also an element of uh, secular growth and productivity uh, that adds a level of resilience, I think, to demand for these companies. That's a great point, uh, the opportunity and the business opportunities that they're pushing into. But gaming still a big part of the picture here. And I wonder if we could see a further pullback in that business. Um, have markets baked in the possibility of oversupply, especially when we see things like the Ether merge? Are you looking at inventory levels and third-party tracking sites? Absolutely. So on uh, the crypto side, it's, it's uh, you know, we have to go back to the 2018-19 cycle when NVIDIA definitely was impacted by the crypto cycle. What is different, though, is that there is a lot more supply constraint. So the channel never had a chance to build up as much inventory as it did in the last uh, cycle. And secondly, at that time, we were at the tail end of NVIDIA's prior Pascal cycle. This time, we are at the start of their new uh, product cycle. So when I take a step back, look at NVIDIA's deployed base of gamers. You know, it's somewhere in the 150 to 200 million or so, and only a third of them have upgraded to NVIDIA's current generation Ampere uh, product. So as we go over the next several quarters, the new product cycle rolls in, the early adopters buy the high end of that uh, product cycle, and meanwhile, the Ampere generation becomes the mainstream product. So it is possible that for the next two or three uh, quarters, gaming demand is muted, but you know what? Data center is over half the business, and that is growing at a 60, 70 percent uh, pace right now. Finally, we mentioned uh, your new target at 270. Um, do you think that 155 was, in fact, the low? So uh, I, I think we have learned this year, uh, Carl, not to call anything you know the absolute low because you know the market uh, has has its own uh, dynamics. But what I would suggest is that you know if you look at growth stocks in semiconductors they tend to trade in a range of one to two times price to earnings growth. So for NVIDIA, if we think that uh, they can maintain this 20% plus sales growth and 25% plus earnings growth, then the stock trading anywhere between 25 to 50 times, we think is in that zone of what is a, the right valuation range. And you know, right now it's trading at the low end of, of that range. So from that perspective, we certainly think that it's as close to a valuation uh, bottom. Absolutely. Oh, fascinating. Uh, Vivek, really appreciate it. Uh, good stuff on Thank an you. important quarter. Vivek Arya uh, joining us from B of A. Pleasure. And after the, after the break, Alibaba and Baidu, they are soaring after reporting strong results. We will talk the opportunities and the risks in Chinese listed, uh, US listed Chinese shares when Tech Check returns after this.
haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. check on another earnings mover this morning. That would be Alibaba. Mixed picture this quarter. The stock is up big today on that revenue beat. Although this was Baba's slowest revenue growth since its IPO. Regulatory headwinds in China, tough macro conditions, repeated outbreaks of COVID. The catalyst there, CEO Daniel Zhang said the company will not issue guidance for the coming fiscal year because of that COVID uncertainty. Meantime, stock has lost a quarter of its value since the start of this year. Shares are up right now, though, nearly 14 percent. But guys, the Nasdaq is up more than 2 percent. So it is getting a bounce here. The question is, do you ever trust that bounce in the Chinese names? I thought that, uh, John, the cloud data this quarter was actually pretty concerning. Despite COVID lockdowns, which should be good for that business, revenue decelerated to 12% year over year. That's from 23% growth last fiscal year. It was attributed to a decline in corporate activities. And we have to remember the bite dance part of this picture. With so many security concerns outside of China, it's been moving off the Alibaba cloud. And we know that, you know, cloud is supposed to be ultimately the secular growth engine, profit engine. And it doesn't look like it's going to be that for Alibaba. Yeah, a couple thoughts here. One is it's a big bounce today, but it's a big bounce that takes us back to the level of three weeks ago, right? So that, that kind of puts into context uh, what kind of moves this stock has had. And then it wasn't too long ago, Carl, that uh, some people were talking about uh, China stocks as being uninvestable. So if you're thinking about the long term, not just a trade right now, sure, the policy has turned more accommodative toward investors now, but what happens in a quarter or in a year, right? And, and what's your time horizon for getting what you want out of these companies? You know, you still got to think about policy and environment and be careful. Yeah, and then you got the added uh, complexity regarding China politics. Uh, this Premier Li, who is increasingly speaking out of mm -hmm. school, really, when it comes to yeah. uh, COVID lockdown, not towing the party line. What would it mean? I mean, uh, GMV combined for January and February, Baba, yeah. wasn't all that bad. If you reverse some of these lockdowns, uh, could you have wound up with a much and better quarter? We're all waiting for more stimulus, right? That is what Beijing has promised. We just don't know what that looks like. On that uninvestable point, John, we got to note that analyst changed his tune only a few weeks after and said, OK, buy the Chinese stock. So careful, the analysts on this, too. <laughs> after the break, a lot more on Snowflake's most recent quarter. Investors once again looking for profitability as the Dow is now up more than 500 points, actually down less than one percent for the month. Don't go anywhere.
haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. We are in rally mode this morning. Take a look at some of the biggest gainers on the NASDAQ. It's actually a pretty nice mix here of some retail, some China tech. You've got some technology, Splunk's in there, AMD, uh, along with travel, uh, Marriott, and some others. So we're going to keep an eye on all of that. Let's get a news update first, though, here. Uh, Seema Modi's got that for us. Hey, Seema. Hey, Carl. Good morning. The U.S. economy's contraction in the first quarter of the year was slightly worse than initially reported. This morning, the government's second estimate of the nation's gross domestic product this winter had it falling at an annual rate of 1.5%. The initial report was a decline of 1.4%. Consumer spending was revised upward, but that was offset by decreases for business and private investments. After a string of retail disappointments, Macy's, well, it's going the other way. Shares are up 16% as quarterly profits and sales beat expectations in the company, raising its profit guidance for the year. Activist investor Carl Icahn has lost a battle in his animal welfare fight with McDonald's. The fast food chain says a preliminary count shows Icahn's board nominees are getting support from holders who control about 1% of the company's outstanding shares. Dee, back to you. Asima, thank you so much. Let's get back to that snowflake quarter. This was one of the buzziest IPOs of 2020. The stock surged 60% in just a few weeks. Warren Buffett invested in the offering. Fast forward to today, though, it is down 70% over the last six months, although worth pointing out the stock was down double digits. It has cut some of those losses. It's now down just about 5.5%. With us now to discuss Maverick Capital's Ambar Bhattacharya. Maverick increased its snowflake stake in Q1. Ambar, you do call this a great management team led by Frank Slootman. What are you looking for from them in this difficult moment for all of tech? First of all, thanks for having me. Really, really excited to be here. Uh, yeah, we, you know, in terms of snowflakes, you know, this is certainly a great company. You know, in terms of how we read, um, you know, how, how we read through from the management team transcript and what they've said, you know, what I look for is we try to understand what tough decisions they're making in this market. And we try to think about how that applies to other companies as well. I think right now, one of the big refrains you're hearing in, in the Valley is how do you focus on profitable growth? And in this context, what, what you're seeing here is Snowflake reiterating that they're going to add a lot of headcount this year, 1,500 plus, plus folks. And that to me is, is, is a tough decision that, that great management teams make. And we're trying to extrapolate that to how, how other teams should be operating in this environment. And so in whether it's the public markets or private markets, what you've seen here a lot are companies flush with capital in the last few years who've been spending in this, in this way that promotes growth at all costs. Now, I think if you read through the, that Snowflake transcript and you hear them on their earnings call, what they're saying is that there's a lot of positive business um, returns that they will get from this increased headcount spend, whether it's in G&A, sales and marketing, and R&D. 
And I think that, that to us, you know, the question we look at is, does that actually increase long-term profitability or not? Mm-hmm. And that's, that is really what, what, they're, what they're signaling and what we're looking for amongst other, other private companies as well. Right. But Ambar, it also kind of clouds that longer term or medium term profitability. We talked about this earlier on in the week, but Snowflake, um, a big cost item is stock based compensation. And if they're hiring that amount, is that shareholder friendly? Doesn't that dilute the existing ones at a time, as you say, when investors are looking for profitable growth? I think there's there's two ways that you can look at it, and whether it's in the public markets or private markets. I think what a very common refrain will be is, uh, you know, what what can we do to slim down our our spend, focus more on profitability in the short term? I think investors are looking for that predictability, that stability. Now, I think the the contrarian view and uh, that that we're that we're excited to hear from from management teams is, the rest of the world is going to pull back. Um, they're going to spend less on sales and marketing. They're going to focus on their top one, two, or three products. Uh, and what, what we're hearing here, um, both in Snowflake as well as other companies that, that we're involved with on the public and private side, is that there are opportunities actually in this market to take advantage of the slowdown of others in terms of their spend. In, in, and in return, you're focusing more on long-term, long-term competitive advantages, long-term moats uh, to, to the business model. And that, I think, on a three, five-year-plus view, those are the kind of things that will generate real returns for us. Ambar, I, th- I think that's important because, you know, a few quarters ago, it hasn't been that long, there was this narrative, well, top line growth is all that matters, right? And, and that seemed to be driving a lot of the technology market. Now there's a shift toward near-term profitability is all that matters. But in the case of a company like Snowflake, still growing more than 80% year over year, a slowdown from, from more than 100%. If your model is working, if you got cash and they got plenty of that thanks to the IPO and whatnot, why not invest to support it, as you said, during this period? And how should investors think about the companies that really do have that ability and opportunity? It's, it's a wonderful question. So here, here's what we're seeing, um, particularly in the private world, where we have you know, very detailed conversations with CFOs as, as they think about this coming and choppy environment. What we're seeing here is a pretty big transition from a growth at all cost model where they were investing a lot more in sales and marketing, a lot more in, in R&D without, without a strong focus on, on, on when and how that turns profitable. I think what you're seeing the market reward now is, is a lot more of these rule of 40 companies, you know, companies that have, if you add up their growth rate plus their EBITDA margin, they hit 40% plus. Uh, if you look at the public comps, you know, the rule of 40 companies trade at a you know, 40% plus higher multiple than, than the company that talking about SaaS companies, SaaS companies that trade at a, you know, 10x plus revenue multiple versus rule of 40, com- non-rule of 40 companies that trade well below that. So what you're seeing now in, in, in real-time fashion are CFOs, CEOs do a reforecast that are focused on these kind of rule of 40 metrics. And if you do that, then I think two things will happen. One is you're focusing on really high return on investments from a capital allocation perspective. And two, you're having very strategic growth as being a top of mind, top of mind attribute. So for companies like Snowflake and, and others that are well above that rule of 40 metric, those, companies like that can go on the offensive. You know, they, they can make strategic investments in sales and marketing. They can do tuck-in acquisitions. And we're seeing that across the board in our private, for, in our private portfolio for companies that are well above that rule of 40 metric. They're, they're actually on the offensive, not necessarily uh, being on the defensive at this moment. Do you think the, uh, the anecdotal uh, color they gave us on, on client spend 
spreads to others that we are going to hear from soon? I'm thinking of, say, for instance, Salesforce. It's it, it, these are all fair questions. I think one one refrain you're hearing across the board is is a note of caution, um, and I think in in this in this environment things are choppy, right? Where you have some data points that are really positive, some data points that are uh, you know that that are less so. Uh, it's it, I, I don't have necessarily a read on you know what what another company is going to going to forecast in a few weeks but but what I what I will say is that this is a time where there's idiosyncratic data points um, that companies have and so where whereas in one in one area you're seeing you know really strong growth i mean across the board what we're seeing is 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 the strength of of the enterprise still you know we haven't seen enterprise spend slow down much um, in in our private portfolio and and certainly on on um, in terms of the strength of consumer, uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of lot of mixed signals there. But in, in companies that we've been involved with since since day one, um, you know, companies like Hims and Hers, you know, it's a very strong, you know, very strong consumer sentiment still, very strong consumer spending still, and so we're we're seeing we're seeing a lot a lot of mixed signals. And so I think the the key for any investor right now uh, is to focus on on a company kind of on a bottom up basis to see, you know, what exactly is happening to that company. Versus necessarily assuming that what you see as a read-through on one company is going to happen to another. Ambar, great insights. Thanks for being with us. We hope to have you back again soon. Ambar, but appreciate it. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. We've got Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman joining us. John? Absolutely. After the break, more on Elon Musk's latest plan to finance his Twitter deal. We'll have what it means for Tesla shareholders as well. Stay with us. Elon Musk increasing his equity commitment for his purchase of Twitter. Julia Borston has more on what it means for both shareholders of Twitter and Tesla, certainly helping Twitter shares, though nowhere near that 54.20. Nowhere near that 54.20, Mark, but Twitter shares are up about 5% this morning as Elon Musk moves forward with his plan to buy the company. Musk reporting to the SEC yesterday that he's increasing his total funding commitment to the deal to $33.5 billion. That's up from $27.25 billion. Now, this after a margin loan commitment expired with Tesla's shares down 34% since the deal was announced, he will no longer be borrowing against his Tesla ownership stake to buy Twitter. Now, the filing is saying that Musk is continuing to seek additional financing for the deal. And one place he's looking is current Twitter shareholders, including former CEO Jack Dorsey. He's talking to Dorsey and other shareholders about potentially retaining their stakes in the company following his takeover. That would be replacing parts of that financing commitment. Now, this filing came on the heels of Twitter's annual shareholder meeting yesterday, in which Jack Dorsey's tenure on the board came to an end. And Elon Musk also lost a key ally on the board. Twitter shareholders voted not to re-elect to the board Silver Lake co-CEO Egon Durbin, a longtime investor in Musk's companies. Now, shareholder advisory service Glass Lewis opposed his re-election to the board, saying he was overboarded, overextended. Now, another Twitter headline yesterday, the company paid $150 million to settle a lawsuit filed by the FTC and DOJ alleging that Twitter misrepresented to its users the extent to which it maintained and protected the privacy of their non-public contact information. Guys, 
Julia, this is, this is all interesting, but especially to me, this part about trying to get existing shareholders to hold on to their stakes. Given what he's been saying, first he says, I'm going to give you 54.20 a share, which, you know, if you're a big shareholder, you're probably like, yay, that's a, that's a lot of money. And you're especially happy about it with the markets down. But now he's saying, actually, no, too many bots. I'm not sure. Maybe it's not worth that. And by the way, will you not cash out at all? And I think it's worth less than what I promised to pay you. Uh, any sense of whether they might go well, for that? Well, look, I, <laughs> what I think was interesting, though, is, is that we, you know, Twitter's shareholder meeting yesterday, they wouldn't answer any questions about the deal. All they said is we are moving forward with the terms as originally discussed. You look at the price right now, $39. Yes, it's up 5% today, but it's at $39 so far below the 54.20. And what I think is interesting is in this filing, Musk is just moving forward with a plan. I think one reason we see the stock up so much is because there wasn't a mention of renegotiation yesterday. So he's just trying to figure out the financing. And for him, having uh, Jack Dorsey hold on to his shares has a double win. That's part of the financing he doesn't have to get. And he gets Jack Dorsey feeling invested and, and effectively partnering with him in whatever changes Musk wants to make on this company. Uh, fascinating, and we are waiting for uh, the next chapter. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston on Musk and Twitter. As we go to break, check out shares at GameStop today, up more than 30% this week, on pace for its first positive week since the end of March. Opened at 116, went to 148. A crazy day, up currently about 127, as we talk about some meme names and volatility. Stay with us. How about that? Uh, more than 2% at the moment. Time for a gut check, meanwhile, on Coinbase. Streets all over the place on this stock. Uh, today, Cowan takes a bullish tone, outperform rating, a price target of 85. But they can do that because they're initiating. Earlier this week, we had on Lisa Ellis from Moffitt Nathanson. She had turned bearish on the stock, but a target of 200. So bearish, but up 3x from here. Well, uh, anyone's guess where it goes from here. Stocks lost three quarters of its value since the start of the year. Today, trading just under 70, which is about where it was, Carl, two weeks ago. Uh, yep, and we're watching crypto as well this morning, John. After the break, we'll talk about Amazon and inside their plan to boost profits. We'll discuss what that means for shareholders as we are holding on to some pretty decent gains here, circling right around 40.50. Let's get back to a story about Amazon that we've been covering over the last few weeks. CEO Andy Jassy telling shareholders at his annual meeting that he is focused on returning to profitability and blaming inflationary effects on shipping for hurting Amazon's bottom line, saying, quote, we're working hard to mitigate these costs wherever we can. He also confirmed reports that Amazon intends to shed its excess warehouse capacity and defer new building activity. Cowan today had an interesting note arguing that it values AWS, Amazon's cloud business, at a $1.2 trillion enterprise value, while Amazon, as a stock today, trades at $1 trillion, implying that investors are essentially getting the company's e-commerce, subscription, advertising, logistics business, all for free. Guys, this argument's been made for some time, but the fact is, is that Amazon is one of these mega caps that 
isn't even expecting operating profits in the quarter ahead. And yesterday was Andy Jassy's first shareholder meeting, and it really felt like he was on the back foot here, the defensive a little bit. You're not used to hearing things from Amazon like this focus on profitability, certainly not during Bezos's era, but things have changed so much, and that is what investors are looking for, even from Amazon right now. Well, in a way. I mean, Bezos... Bezos' time has been long there, and we've seen a lot of cycles. I think it's important for investors to remember Amazon's making these mega bets on people and logistics. And, and what are the costs that are really out of control right now? Labor and gas, right? Yeah. So, so they've been caught sort of holding the bag here, but they're still making investments in people and logistics, Carl, at a higher rate than others. And so you got to wonder... Uh, how much is it worth if Amazon is right? And how much are you willing to bet that Amazon is right? I guess that's what investors have to think through. I know, but with every additional headline Bloomberg's got on the tape right now, D, Microsoft will slow hiring in Windows Office and Teams mm -hmm. chat and conferencing software groups, citing a need to realign staffing priorities. And they've been one of the ones that arguably have been net uh, most aggressive on the wage <laughs> front, at least. So they absolutely uh, it's going to be, a, yeah, at what point does that, does that uh, dynamic, that calculus tip more into the caution side? Yeah, it's a good question. We, we should remember, too, though, that AWS was built when investors were saying scale back on those costs ended up being the profit engine. To your point, John, public companies, though, they're not the only ones that are cutting costs. Sequoia, just the latest VC firm to warn its portfolio companies to tighten their belts. Kate Rooney has more on what it could mean for the market. And Kate, we've seen this from a number of VC companies. It's almost like a running joke now. But Sequoia <laughs> is really key because it's sort of been first to warn and has a history of warning and building during these times, too. Yeah, absolutely. They've had the Black Swan memo that we talked about a couple of years ago. But Sequoia's advice to founders this time around, preserve cash and cut costs or you're really not going to make it through this slowdown. I got a copy of Sequoia's 52-page presentation to those founders. People really pay attention to these memos. It's been one of Silicon Valley's most successful investment firms. Sequoia calling this a crucible moment for founders. It doesn't see the economy bouncing back anytime soon, warning those startups to tighten their belts in the meantime. Alfred Lin, Roloff Botha, and some of the other Sequoia partners talk about inflation, geopolitical conflicts, all limiting what policymakers can do to step in here. They say, unlike 2020, this correction won't be followed by a V-shaped recovery. Sequoia also warns of what they call a death spiral, referring to companies that grow too fast without slowing spending. You can see it in that chart there. Growth at all costs, they say, is over. Investors are now rewarding discipline. It's the latest sign of austerity we've seen in tech. You had Meta, Uber freezing hiring, Robinhood and Netflix with layoffs as well. And the job cuts are starting to pile up at private companies. We had Bolt and Klarna the latest this week. I spoke to Sequoia partner Michelle Bailey about this yesterday. She says Sequoia's advice doesn't mean 100% job cuts for everyone. It could mean less R&D, for example. And some should actually keep their foot on the gas pedal. She said the playing field has gotten tougher, but it can also be an opportunity. Yeah, we're hearing that from a lot of people. Carl and John, we heard that from Ambar Bhattacharya today with Maverick Ventures. He said that some companies are able to be offensive still in this environment, be on the offense, not the defense. And that really depends on how much they have built up during times being good, right? You have some of the gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft. They didn't get to that level of profitability earlier. So now they're on the back foot. Yeah, I, I, I think we've got to be careful, Carl, because there was that black swan memo and there are companies that cut back at the start of COVID startups and then wish they hadn't. 
right? Uh, because you did have that V-shaped recovery. So the VCs aren't always right. But what does seem to be clear is the underlying message here from Sequoia, don't expect more money from us, entrepreneur, unless your operations look like this. And that should tell investors something about what the IPO market will or won't look like over the next at least 12 months. Uh, indeed. Generating cash. That is the bottom line from all of uh, Sequoia's deck. Uh, pretty fascinating. By the way, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Apple boosting pay for both retail and corporate employees following a similar move from Microsoft, although some headlines crossing moments ago that Microsoft may be looking to slow hiring. Steve Kovac has more on Apple. Steve, uh, sometimes the wage and the unionization headlines run on the same day. Yeah, exactly, Carl. So here's the news uh, out of Apple this morning. Apple is raising its starting pay for retail workers to $22 an hour and increasing its pay budget for all employees globally. Apple telling me in a statement to starting wages for retail are up 45 percent in the last four years alone. And now, Carl, there are lots of reasons this is happening. Of course, we have the historic inflation, 8 percent in April, combined with that tight labor market. And then there's the tanking stock price of Apple. So raising wages helps Apple retain their talent. And like you said, Microsoft raised wages for similar reasons earlier this month. And finally, the big one, unionization efforts in retail are just a week away from the first vote at that Apple store in Atlanta. And a second store in Maryland will vote the following week. So far, we know that about four stores are at various stages in this unionization process. And Apple's HR retail boss, Deirdre O'Brien, sent a video message to employees yesterday saying unions will make it difficult for Apple to be nimble and give employees what they want. Now, $22 per share is pretty close to what a lot of the union organizers I've talked to have been buzzing about. But then there's that Grand Central store where organizers there are asking for a whopping $30 an hour. Now, Apple says starting pay may be higher for some areas, but they weren't specific what that starting pay is and which regions that applies to. So now we kind of wait and see, Carl, if this puts a little bit of a wet blanket on these unionization efforts in Atlanta and Maryland, guys. All right. Meanwhile, Steve, uh, this pileup of headlines regarding Apple and production, looking to diversify out of China, uh, distribution delays, and today it's about potentially, according to one report, keeping phone production flat for the year. Yeah, th that's right, Carl. And uh, I always listen to uh, Morgan Stanley's Katie Huberty on this stuff. And yesterday we had that Nikkei report saying that the next iPhone, the 14, is delayed, and she kind of threw cold water on that one. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like we may be flat, but you also got to keep in mind we're coming off that super cycle of iPhone sales from the 12 and 13. So this law was kind of expected. Uh, Steve, thanks for that. Watching Apple closely on a day where we were surprised to get back above 4K now, all halfway between 4K and 4100. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.